Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Coming up, happy Independence Day, everybody. Part two of our 4th of July special on the American Navy. We're going to pick it up with the battleship through aircraft carriers with Drakenfell. Check it out. Hopefully, y'all have listened to part one by now, because if you have, you're going to be wanting this. Because it's really, it's really a lot of fun to talk about uh, the American Navy, the history of it, the ship design, the evolution. Uh, in part one, we we kind of took it up to the Civil War, and now it's it's battleship time, which is going to be a lot of fun. So stay tuned. It's a great show. But before we get to it, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering, with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at LJA.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com. Let me um, take a mm-hmm. take a step back here because, yep. as a, I mean, you're just encyclopedic. It's just stunning, uh, and I, I we haven't even <laughs> scratched the surface here. But I I wanted to ask you. Uh, as a person who has invested um, as much time as you have in understanding uh, naval history mm-hmm. and uh, and down to the level, you mentioned you're an engineer, so I really appreciated learning that because it told me something about uh, what, you're, what you look at and what you understand about the world. I work with a lot of engineers, and it's it's, it's a school perspective. Uh, yeah. But w- when you look at this in the, in the arc of history, are there periods... Um, that you are that are your favorites personally this era this particular type of ship design this when you when you sort of sizing it up uh this spectrum and understanding over such a period of time um what do you, what do you love about it what what's your favorite my favorite overall period would probably have to be the period that we're, we're now coming in to talk about it's kind of 18 1860 through to about 1920. I mean, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a long period, but okay. at the same time, it's sixty years that effectively there's a new technological innovation almost every year. Um, prior prior to the so post and prior to this era, ships last a lot longer. So, 
HMS Victory, for example, Nelson's flagship at Trafalgar. Nelson, that HMS Victory is built, launched, and on the Medway um, in reserve at the time when Nelson, as a as a young midshipman, is undergoing his training to become a, a well, in British terms, lieutenant, in American terms, lieutenant. But it's been built when Nelson. It was started to be built when Nelson was born. And it fights in the Battle of Trafalgar when almost half a century later, and it's still in service about a decade after that. So a ship of the line like Victory lasts 50, 60 years. Some ships last even stunning. longer. Um, and that that's pretty much par for the course unless a ship's been badly damaged. And of course... On the flip side of that, once you get into the kind of the Cold War era and these days, you think about ships like CVN-65, USS Enterprise, I was around for pretty much half a century, give or take, um, because the le although individual parts of ship technology are innovating, the overall like Enterprise was almost as lethal a combatant when she was decommissioned a few years ago as she was when she was first launched. Wow. But in this period of 1860 to 1940, some ships can be obsolete before they've even finished construction. Because um, the technology is advancing that quickly. Yeah. So we're talking yeah. about the Civil War era up through World War One, essentially, this period yeah. of incredible innovation. Um, what stands out, really, there's, you said there's so much here in terms of mm power plant and armament and design and gunnery i mean navigation i mean everything right is getting different nobody's mm -hmm. using a sextant are they still doing navigation by stars at this point i guess so. they 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 actually do that's it's one of the few things that from the age of sail that would still be recognizable even by world war ii simply because yeah. um there, there are radio beacons that will tell you where you are relative to the shore but obviously they don't carry too far out to sea right um and it's it's pre-gps yeah so once you once you've once you're out of range of friendly coastline you are still navigating by charts um and dead reckoning longitude latitude using clocks and sextants and let's say stuff that would be recognizable to an, an early 1800s era naval officer right. the only the only real advantage you've got on a world war ii ship compared to an age of sail ship of the line is that you've probably got a better idea of exactly how fast you're moving thanks to the fact that obviously you're now fully steam powered you can hmm. work out your, your speed and course a bit more precisely right and um and radio yeah. coming so this uh I, you know i've got a as someone who doesn't uh, spend a lot of time in this subject area, the things that jump mm -hmm. out at me that I've always wanted to know more about uh, the battleship and the dreadnought, which I, the yeah. dreadnought is a term I don't really fully understand, but I, mm -hmm. I, I think it's affiliated with battleships. Can you talk about yeah. this particular, what, what this was about, what these ships were yeah. about? So the term battleship arrives through a very convoluted series of, of events. So, the term originates all the way back in the age of sail with the first rate and the second rate and the third rate, and they're called line of battle ships, i.e. they're ships that stand in the line of battle, which is this, this big sort of line of gunnery that we've talked about earlier. Weirdly enough, in the middle of the 1800s, this gets shortened to liners, 
which can be very confusing if you're used to that term applying more to sort of cruise ships these days. But as you move forward into the latter part of the 1800s, this the the, the other end of the term of the battleship becomes more in vogue. So the the battleship is originally it's the ship that stands in the line of battle, and this kind of starts to move towards what we would call the capital ship huh. of the era. Interesting. So this, um, and they were the, the big, uh, yeah. Go ahead. Well, I mean, it seemed like uh, mm-hmm. it was a function of they were massively armed. I think I, I'm trying to. De- hmm. What was the definition of a battleship? It was a size and an armament thing, and it was the it was the lead ship of the fleet, right? Yeah, I mean, to a certain degree. The uh, definition hadn't really changed. It was still, ultimately, are you going to put this ship front and center if you end up fighting against another navy? Okay, that that would be your battleship. Now there is, I, in, in other words, I just want to I want to dwell on this because it's it's kind of glorious. Yeah. It's saying our big, biggest, baddest mofo, yeah, can take yeah. on anything you got. That yeah. was that was the that was the mentality. It's yeah. that simple. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There, there, there's there's a little bit towards the end of the 1800s, there's a little bit of argument as to whether or not cruisers can take their, can possibly be a secondary part of the battle line. Because, to be honest, some of the bigger cruisers are, are as big or bigger than battleships of the period, uh, what we would call pre dreadnoughts. Um, and. Uh, as much or more expensive but their design philosophy is very very different they don't have anywhere near as heavy armor they don't have as heavy guns for the most part um, they are a bit faster but this is be- the, the entire reason they even come up in the first place is because um guns have advanced to the point that by the end of the eight of the 19th century You've got your battleships, which have absolutely colossal weapons. I mean, right at the end, they're standardizing down more towards a 12-inch gun. But in the sort of 1870s, 1880s, you get 13.5-inch, 16.25-inch, 17-inch guns, um, massive things. And the battleships are are armored to take the punishment from these kinds of, of guns. But because loading technology hasn't caught up with them, and because there's no real fire control director technology as we'd understand in World War One and World War Two, battle ranges are quite short, and the big guns can fire very slowly, probably one of, once every few minutes, if that. And so there is this idea that maybe a cruiser with faster firing weapons can come in and just keep hitting the battleship repeatedly, even if it can't breach the armor belt or the main gun turrets, they can blow up everything else, the secondary guns, the superstructure, the bridge, and cripple it as a fighting unit. Um, Then it turns out that as gun technology advances and the big guns are able to reload faster, and as this century turns into the 20th century, you get improved fire control systems central fire control directors and such ranges suddenly increase so now all of a sudden cruisers are outranged they're outgunned their rate of fire isn't really 
anyway the difference in rate of fire isn't anywhere near as great so the battleship returns to preeminence as very definitely the center line unit that this is this is the ship you will win your war with at least if you subscribe to um alfred thayer mahan's theory of the decisive battle um and this this is where obviously reflecting on the 4th of july this is where american innovation starts to be seen quite a lot because at the time of the american civil war although they're cranking out monitors and and things like uss new ironsides technologically the usa is probably five to ten years behind everybody else hmm. by the time you get to the 1880s 1890s apart from some experience building the larger ships the usa is pretty much on a par with everybody else and actually leading in certain fields so you have iron armor um, you then have compound armor, which is a steel plate layered over iron. And then the next big innovation and the innovation that allows people to go fully into steel warships is actually an American innovation, which is Harvey nickel steel armor. And this is the first fully full thickness steel plate armor that can be used on capital ships. And because it's much stronger than iron, it suddenly means you can reduce the thickness of armor belts considerably and still have the same protection which means in turn that ships can actually start to become properly ocean going again because if you look at some of the 1870s and 1880s era battleships they're very low in the water they look almost like um in some cases almost like american civil war era monitors just on a grander scale and with a bunch of superstructure and that's because the armors had to become so thick and so heavy they have to cut the ships down for stability and also just so that there's a small enough portion of the ship above water you can actually protect it harvey steel armor allows for in the us the the new all steel navy and all of a sudden free the freeboard of ships starts getting much higher they go back to being fully ocean going again and because they can actually now sort of ride through waves rather than have the waves come down on top of them speed also starts to pick up a little bit as well which uh, prompts an evolution in propulsion technology wow that's very interesting i just i'm gonna pull the curtain back here as mm -hmm. as a co-host because i uh i know i want to get to the great white fleet and we're in this amazing period of time where technology is rapidly changing uh, help help me understand how we get mm -hmm. to the Great White Fleet, uh, a, mm -hmm. an amazing American naval uh, achievement, I think we could say. Yeah. So so what happens is that the, the groundwork's actually laid back at the American Civil War because the American Civil War sees the Navy balloon to colossal proportions. Um, unfortunately, immediately after that, Congress goes after the budget like anything and the American Navy shrinks back down to basically almost nothing. Um you then have this naval scare where it looks like Brazil, of all people, might become the dominant naval power in North and South America, and you start get to, to see the start of the all-steel navy. This turns out to be fortuitous because you then end up with the Spanish-American War, and in the Spanish-American War, the newly built all-steel U.S. Navy turns out to be significantly superior to the Spanish Armada. And yes, it's still called that, um, wow. still called that even to this day. Um, and they win that the their naval engagements pretty uh, decisively, but it's very clear from to all sides that something needs to be done about range because the guns are capable of shooting miles and miles and miles. 
but in this in the battles of the spanish american war gunnery a range that's much beyond what you would find in an age of sail era fight is basically completely inaccurate so uh, we're talking about uh, spanish american war uh, yeah. very brief encounter in 1898 lasts mm -hmm. basically over the course of the summer it's uh, yeah. you know fair weather battle that really gets kicked off by the uh, sinking of uh, the the main the main in, in Havana yep. Harbor, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and the, the main well, the main thing to take that everyone takes away from it is say is that no one hits anything by real planning or judgment. It's almost luck. Um, the Americans have a bit more luck and a little bit better disciplined gunnery crews, but the hit rates are still sort of one percent or sub one percent of ammunition expended. Good grief. Is it a training um, then, problem? Is it a technology problem? I mean, were the British gunners at this time or other more advanced naval forces <laughs> better with the, the technology the, of the day? Or was it was it a problem of the technology? It's a mixture of both. I mean, British gunnery is slightly more advanced, but not by much. Um, their sort of their prize engagement range for their that when they uh, sort of doing gunnery prize competitions is a fraction over a thousand yards. Um, but realistically speaking, given that these ships are several hundred yards long, it's still basically within spitting distance. It's mostly a technology issue. So the guns can shoot far enough, more than far enough. It's actually aiming them that's the problem um, because you, you start to get into all sorts of uh, weird and wonderful calculations. And I've, I've recently done a video actually on fire control and plotting systems, which explains well, the, this in a lot more detail. The gun deck is um, moving. It's going up and down. I mean, the timing yeah. of the shell release. I mean, good grief. The, the yeah. complexity of accurately firing a weapon mm. a thousand yards or a half a mile or three miles has got to yeah. be crazy and on a ship. Yeah, and so what you get is Admiral Sims in the U.S. Navy turns around, looks at the Spanish-American war performance and goes, no, th this isn't going to do. We need to do a lot better than this. And so in conjunction with the with Congress, for the first time in practically its entire history, actually giving relatively consistent levels of funding to the Navy, albeit still not at the levels they'd like, the Navy starts building up a fleet of battleships and the... Uh, and under the direction of Admiral Sims, the gunnery um, is revised. The gunnery practices are revised. Training is increased. New systems of fire control direction are brought in. And all of a sudden, they can actually shoot sort of further than the average human eye could probably guess anyway. This all leads to the US Navy rapidly growing. Um, so they now have a fair number of ships, but what they don't have is prestige japan which is america's main competitor um mostly obviously over the pacific suddenly gets a massive influx of prestige in the mid-1900s in the russo-japanese war where they effectively take on 70 80 percent of the entire imperial russian navy battleship fleet and oh. sink it in several engagements most notably the battle of tsushima and then capture a bunch of Russian ships as almost as if it's like the Age of Sail again. So <laughs> um, things are... Then they're not looking brilliant at this point because Russia traditionally was always the 
sort of the big threat through most of the 1800s to Britain as the predominant naval power. You have Russia and France, kind of the next two big navies. Um, now, Spain has kind of fallen by the wayside. And this is the thing, is although the, Sp the Americans have won the Spanish-American War, the Spanish Navy by the end of the 1800s is in such a sorry state, no one's really giving them that much credit for it. Mm -hmm because it's like, well, we'd be surprised if you lost kind of thing. Um, so now the Americans are faced with a situation of they have this new Navy, they don't have the prestige because they basically not really got onto the world stage before. Right. Their main competitor has loads of prestige. And now President Theodore Roosevelt is sitting there going, well, we need in some way to announce to the world, we're here, we've got the ships, you need to take us seriously. And bearing in mind, this is the year of gunboat diplomacy, where if you want to make a point, and there's lots of international disputes where you need to make a point, the way you do it is you sail a ship or multiple ships there and you sit off the shore and you go, right, well, you're going to listen to me and you're going to decide in my favor, mainly because I have a lot of very big guns pointing at you. And there's more where that came from. Right. And no one still the case today. The projection of yeah. power is an essential feature of naval power in, exactly. in the world yeah. today. And uh, even this week with the United States putting three aircraft carrier groups in the Pacific right now to say some things to China right now. So the projection of yeah. power theory of naval power. pretty. But keep going. So we're, we're yeah. in the early 1900s here around. Yeah. Yeah. OK. Around 1905, 1906. So okay. um no one really believes that the Americans can do anything beyond their own shores because historically they never really have. And now Theodore Roosevelt goes, right, well, we've got all these ships. We're going to prove to everybody that this, that we can't, we, we are there. And this is when he sends out the great white fleet. So, um, the origins of that is from in the 19th century and into the early 20th century, everybody had a peacetime and a wartime camouflage scheme. So, or paint scheme in wartime everyone was going to paint their ships varying shades of gray but in peacetime as part of this whole showing off part there were a variety of different paint schemes and the u.s navy had one of the best i have to say there's wonderfully white holes sort of this buff dash orange yellowish um upper works and <clears throat> black funnels usually it looked Very absolutely classy. fantastic. It was an absolute pain to keep <laughs> in top condition because hey, it's white paint at sea where ships rust. Um, uh, but as long as you keep it looking good, it, it makes a really, really good visual statement. Okay, hang on a and second so here. I got to ask mm. a question. I had no idea, first of all, that there was a peacetime configuration paint scheme for ships mm -hmm. in a wartime. I've always wondered about the white naval uniforms being stark white, you know. And of course, mm -hmm. was that that was that the naval uniform of the day? Were the were the men wearing white in mean, their dress uniforms? Uh, yeah, were they white wh at the time? White was a very common color because a lot of operations, especially for the U.S. Navy, took place in tropical environments. Um, yeah. So most most navies would have a tropical uniform and a. Uh, a, a non-tropical uniform if you like so in the royal navy there's a lot of blue that's present because let's face it the north sea and the north atlantic is anything but tropical um but the, the for the u.s a lot navy, of war. yeah for the u.s navy most of their focus at this point is i mean you think where where the big naval bases are 
mostly Norfolk, Virginia, and then latterly developing in San Diego in California. Um, they're very interested in what's going on in the Caribbean, in Central America, in the northern part of South America. They're very interested in what's going on in the Pacific, uh, sort of Japan, China, and the area south of that. These are all very hot environments. So naval unif tropical naval uniforms generally are white, but it means that the vast majority of US sailors will be wearing white more often than not because there's not really anything extreme north or extreme south that the US is particularly interested in at this point. Uh, very, very interesting. Now, you mentioned Roosevelt, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, mm -hmm. uh, who was the secretary, assistant secretary of the Navy, I believe, um, on his way to become the president in his long career. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, he was a, a naval a historian himself and actually wrote... I know one book about uh, naval tactics, I believe. Can you tell us a little bit about that book and what, what, what his kind Was of conclusions were? Yeah. yeah. What, what were his thoughts on the yeah. Navy? So, so he, he very much like another great American naval thinker of the period, which was Alfred Thayer Mahan. Um, he looked back at the history of countries that had navies and how they use those navies to project power and how those countries achieved power through their navies and he understood both from the peacetime exercise of naval power and also from the way that battles developed because he did a lot of analysis of of naval battles and conflicts as much as the the general sort of existence and use sounds of like navies. teddy yeah and this is why he had this kind of speak softly and carry a very big stick policy because he knew that in a in an age when obviously the aircraft for most of his life hadn't been invented and the 1900s only just been invented and was basically not, not really good for much more than uh, sort of pointing at and looking at the new novelty. It was the navies that allowed you to exert your power elsewhere, especially for a country like the United States, because the United States wasn't going to go to war with the British Empire anytime soon. So Canada was effectively a non-threat. Non Mexico was there as an annoyance, and of course there was the American-Mexican War, um, which uh, he, he had taken part in. But again, Mexico is not exactly an existential threat to the United States or its interests. Where all of America's big interests were, and where the biggest threats that could potentially stymie those interests were, was overseas. And so looking back at history, Roosevelt, like Mahan, looked and went, okay, when you've got a nation that needs to exert its interests overseas, how does it do that? And it's always with a strong navy. And he also realizes that, bearing in mind that America is still in a relatively isolationist phase at this point, he realizes that the best way to protect your interests is to make yourself look too big and too threatening and too difficult to deal with in the first place. And the Navy is the best way to do that because you can show up off the enemy's coast and you can say, look, I can come to you. You don't want that to happen. So don't mess with me. And and if there are, I say, disputes over who owns this island or that island or this trade dispute or that trade dispute, again, you show up and it's like, okay, I'm here with my big Navy. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to bring your own Navy? Better hope you've got a Navy that's big enough to face mine. And this way, just by having a navy, he 
understands the principle that that in and of itself will stop a lot of people messing around with your interests. So your Navy might not need to fight or not need to fight very often, which in turn is both better for you in terms of you're not losing your the lives of your servicemen and you're also not expending the vast amounts of money that comes with war. Right. Let's 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 carry on now because uh mm-hmm. Roosevelt uh uh liked war actually. One of his yeah. uh one of his characteristics as a as a leader, he did not shy away from war and he encouraged mm-hmm. the United States uh to go to war in World War 1. And yeah. uh, when we think of World War One, we think of the trenches, we think of mm-hmm. Europe, and we think of kind of that uh, the the soldier uh, with the little little helmet on and the yeah. trenches just miserable. But I don't know much about the naval action during that period of time. Was the U.S. Navy how was the U.S. Navy engaged in uh, fighting World War One, and what what did those engagements look like? Right. So the, the U.S. Navy, for the most part, doesn't have a massive history with World War One, mainly because the U.S. only gets involved in 1917, uh, towards the end of it. What they are doing initially is uh, neutrality patrols and escorting their merchants um, and such like in the Western Atlantic. They are a little bit annoyed with the British because the British declare, uh, for obvious reasons, a total blockade of Germany. And as a at the time neutral nation, the Americans would rather like to trade with both sides so they can make the maximum amount of money. And the British basically say, no, you can trade with us as much as you like, but you're not trading with Germany because effectively we're using our Navy as a massive boot on their throat and hoping to, to starve them out of resources, which actually works, um, which is, has been historical British naval policy for as long as they've been able to control the seas. And so there's a there's a bit of tension there. But again, because although Congress has been giving the US money, it's still been relatively, relatively um, stingy with it. And so the American fleet is big, but it's not able to fight the Royal Navy big. And they've had to spend their money where they can um, on what they think is the most important stuff. So which effectively is battleships. Okay, so me... the US Navy going into World War One is in this slightly odd position of it has some of the latest and best battleships on the planet, but it has practically no destroyers. And the last cruisers it built of any particular significance were about 10 years ago, and they're now ho- hopelessly obsolete. So that's what um, I wanted to ask you right there is when we talked about the Great White Fleet, yeah. uh, 1907... The United mm-hmm. States sends this contingent of 16 battleships to basically circumnavigate the globe and yep. make its presence felt all over the world, primarily in the Pacific side, Asia, I guess, and South mm-hmm. America. But they're, they, they've got 16 battleships here uh, painted white, and mm-hmm. they're these dreadnought-class ships. Yep. By World War One, which is 10 years later, in fact, about, about 10 years yep. later— are we still sailing the ships from the White Fleet? And what is our technology? How does it compare at that point? Uh, were we, where were we in relative to other naval powers in the world going into World War One? Yeah. So going into World War One, the ships of the Great White Fleet, at least the later ones like the Virginia class and the Connecticut class, are still around, but they're very much second-lined units by now. Um, what's happened is you've got HMS Dreadnought, which lends its name to Dreadnoughts as a, as, a, as a type, 
And this is a huge revolution in thinking because Dreadnought introduces the idea of instead of having pretty much the standard battleship layout that everyone's been using for two decades, which is a pair of twin gun turrets, one at the front, one at the back with your heavy guns, and then lots of different calibers of smaller secondary guns down the side. Dreadnought scraps all of that and goes, right, we're just going to have loads of really big guns and a small secondary battery for dealing with destroyers and torpedo boats. The US Navy follows the trend. In fact, they've actually started their version, the USS South Carolina, before Dreadnought. But Admiral Fisher in the Royal Navy basically just breaks all construction records and has Dreadnought built, launched, commission and commissioned in insanely fast time. Um, the US Navy is well able to keep up in terms of armor and armament with everybody else. Propulsion-wise, not quite as much. Um, Dreadnought goes in for turbine propulsion, which is the, the new way of propulsion over the old triple expansion engine. The US Navy sticks with triple expansion engines for longer, partly because Britain is the innovator in turbine propulsion and it takes everyone else a few years to catch up, but partly also because Germany, which after a bit of a hiatus also adopts turbine propulsion, Germany is building a fleet to challenge the Royal Navy, which is about 100 miles away across part of the North Sea. So they don't need to worry about long range. They can afford to go uh, turbines once they've got the technology because turbines might be a little bit inefficient. The ships might be a bit shorter range, but it doesn't matter <laughs> when your enemy's basically on your doorstep. The Royal Navy can afford the slightly less uh, slightly less range that turbines allow in exchange for their better speed and greater high speed reliability because they've got bases everywhere. So even if they do run short of coal, they can just pop into a nearby port, and that's fine. Fuel up. The US, on the other hand, we, again, with its main interest focused in the Pacific, and at the time Pearl Harbor on Hawaii is not really heavily built up as it would be in World War II, they've got to get basically to the other side of the Pacific, to the Philippines and back. And so whilst they may be slightly slower and slightly less efficient in in that in high speed, the vertical triple expansion engine works better for the US Navy, at least for the first the last few years of the 1900s. And so they they stick with that. They me... briefly go with turbines like everybody else once they're happy that the te their technology is matured enough to allow them to have the long range that they need. Um, but then they go off on their own little side quest, as it were, for propulsion and for this for world for much of the world war one period which is actually turbo electric drive which has advantages and disadvantages compared to standard turbines but it is very much a unique thing that the the u.s navy runs with in the 1910s so when they go into world war uh, world war one their latest ships which are now the standard class battleships um things like the nevada class new mexico class pennsylvania class etc I say these ships can pretty much stand toe to toe with with the best ships in the world that are presented by the the British and the Germans, things like the Queen Elizabeth, the Revengers, and the Baden class in Germany. Um, but they are they are somewhat different in design concept. the The standard class have also invented uh, adopted the this new form of armoring called the all or nothing armor scheme, oh. which again is a, an American innovation and very important because obviously gunpowder has been growing and growing 
Um, the ships of the Great White Fleet mounted 12-inch guns. Um, the early dreadnoughts, um, the Delaware class, Florida, Wyoming, South Carolina class, they're mounting 12-inch guns as well, but a lot more of them. Um, so the flagship USS Connecticut in the Great White Fleet has four 12-inch guns. Um, by the time you're getting to something like a Florida class, which is under construction almost at the time the Great White Fleet comes home, they've got 12 of them. Wow. And then it's evolved onto, by the time you get to the USS Texas and USS New York and subsequent classes, and they're now 14-inch guns. And after the Nevadas and New Yorks, all the further standards have 12 guns. Can um, we can we just pause real fast when yeah. we, we're throwing out these gun sizes? I think it's easy yes. to be like, oh, it's a... it's. Can you like tell us about the damage? Uh, like, how much power does a twelve-inch gun represent, or a fifty? I mean, like, what are we talking yeah. about? Is it a, in terms of weight of projectile? I mean, like, what will this do to a target? Well, I also want to know what does it measure? Is twelve inches the diameter of the shell, or what does it refer yes. to? Right. So, a twelve-inch gun, or whatever, or however many-inch gun, that refers to the diameter of the shell and thus the diameter of the bore of the gun. Um, one of the quick ways of referring to to get an idea of what kind of guns we're talking about is you usually say insert inches dash and then you give a number um and that's the, the what's called the gun length in calibers so if you were to say say a 12 inch 45 caliber gun that means that the width of the bore is 12 inches and the length of the barrel is 45 times that diameter so 45 times 12. um and that gives you the, the length of the gun. And that's quite important because a, a gun that is 40 to 45 calibers long is fairly standard for this period. A gun that's longer than that, maybe a 50 or 52 caliber length gun, is a long ba longer barreled gun. It's going to be firing a, a shell a lot faster um, and therefore theoretically a lot further away. But it's also much bigger, much heavier, much more expensive weapon. Okay, hang on um, a second. When you say faster, one. you're not talking about the reloading speed. We're talking about the projectile the velocity. speed, the velocity yeah, of the, the projectile. the velocity of the projectile, and exactly. The, and the length of uh, the barrel is related to that but because of the, 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 the powder burn. Yeah, is yeah. contained within the barrel for a longer period of time and yeah. generates more power. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this, this, is, this is why... If, if, I mean, if you take it down to sort of uh, handheld firearms, this is why you can have a pistol and a rifle of exactly the same caliber, um, whether that's 9mm, 7.62mm, 0.22, I guess, or 0 0.303, 3.06. Um, you can have bullets that are exactly the same diameter, but the round from a pistol is a lot less powerful than the round from a rifle at the same at the same bore diameter because the rifle has that much longer barrel so the powder is burning the powder burn and the expansion from the gas which is pushing the projectile along Got gets it. to act on that projectile for a lot longer than wow. you would on say a pistol so let me um, uh, just quickly uh, you know in the we're talking about the development of the battleship and mm -hmm. the the notion that it was evolving from uh maybe a couple of 12 inch uh guns to really turrets of f two or four or five turrets uh, mm -hmm. with a couple of barrels at this point in the design. When, when they're thinking about these, I, I'm wondering to what extent is the design of the armaments on ships at this point driven by uh, ship-to-ship -ship warfare 
versus ship to land bombardment it and is there a difference in what they were thinking about there and what they were doing yeah they're almost entirely thinking about ship to ship combat because by this point the size of battleship guns has gone way beyond anything that you'll find on land outside of very very niche applications um so to give you some idea uh, an eight inch gun on land would be a very heavy piece of artillery. It'll probably be the the heaviest piece of artillery that you'd be likely find in a World War One artillery park in any significant number. And it's probably going to be maybe a 25 or 35 caliber length weapon. So it's almost a howitzer. It's not going to shoot as far. It's not going to shoot um, as heavy a shell necessarily as an eight-inch naval gun, which might be twice the barrel length. And an eight-inch gun by World War One is something that you find on a large cruiser. A battleship gun at 12 inches or 14 inches, you only will ever find these in the biggest fixed fortifications and maybe on rail as rail guns, as in guns that are on rail, railway carriages. And uh, a, a single... 11 12 14 inch rail gun would be a huge siege gun it would be a massive investment in time and resources hugely vulnerable for a land-based army and it would have a rate of fire measured in sort of rounds per hour because effectively when it's mounted on the carriages you just have the gun everything else is being done around it whereas if you look at a battleship um, a, let's say a New Mexico class battleship, which is one of my favorite US battleships, that thing's going to be carrying 12 of these 14 inch guns under massive armor protection. They can move a lot faster than even a rail gun can. Um, they've got m- loads of fire direction control equipment, so they can shoot a lot further, a lot more accurately. And because they've got dedicated hoists, dedicated magazines, dedicated handling systems for the shells, they can fire in terms of rounds per minute. Now, fair enough, it might only be two, two and a half rounds per minute, That's a, but that's a lot better than two to two and a half rounds per hour that you might get from a rail gun. That's amazing. And it really is. I mean, the advantages of a ship is that it can be really, mm-hmm. really big. And by this point, they're designing the whole ship around you know as as you said truck like uh, starting with a couple and now we're getting more and more of these big 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 guns but i still want to know like are we talking in terms of like weight of the project i mean yeah. what would help me understand like if one of these things impacted i don't know what i, I don't know how to even like another ship or a piece of concrete how much shit could it blow up <laughs> yeah yeah Basically, okay so so sorry let's this is a good a, part a 12 inch gun for example so a 12 inch gun um depending on the nation uh the gun fires a projectile that weighs somewhere in the region of eight to nine hundred pounds and this weight escalates very rapidly as guns increase in size because you get a lot more volume for relatively small increases in dimension. So a 14-inch weapon is firing a shell that weighs well over a 1,000 pounds, um, and it just goes up from there. It's firing these shells at supersonic velocities. So you're talking about a shell that's... It weighs as much as a modern car compacted into a... Uh, a sort of a, a, a massive bullet-shaped projectile that's significantly smaller than that, um, and it's coming in at the speed of a fighter, a modern fighter jet with full afterburners going. Um, 
So to give you some idea of the of um, just how powerful these things are, I mean, they're carrying probably anything from 20 to 40 pounds of explosive in the armor piercing variants, which are designed to punch through a ship's armor and detonate inside. And bearing in mind, we're now talking like a foot plus of steel these things are punching through. Um, anything up to three to 400 pounds of explosive, if you're firing a high explosive round, which just detonates on contact and is more effective against lightly armored targets and such. Um, but yeah, uh, Good ex a very good example, actually, at the Battle of Jutland between the Royal Navy and the uh, High Seas Fleet of Germany, a 15-inch round slams into the stern of SMS von der Tann, which is a German battle cruiser. Um, British shells at Jutland have a slight problem, the armor-piercing shells, they, they tend to detonate on or shortly after impact rather than punching through, which is uh, an aspect of uh, the shell design they got wrong in that particular era, but that's kind of a separate thing. But even though it's not punched through into the ship, it's just kind of hit the armor and detonated, the Von der Tann's armor belt, which is almost a foot thick slab of steel, taller than a man and much, much longer, is physically shoved into the side of the ship to such a point that it opens up a massive rip along the hull. And um, according to Crewman, whose account I was reading about a few days ago, the entire ship basically whips back and forth. Um, you can't imagine like a, a 20 plus thousand ton armoured capital ship bending, but this thing basically bends back and forth almost like an arrow that's stuck into a target about five or six times to the point, and the bending is bad enough, it actually severs radio cables on the masts because wow. the ship's moving so badly. That's the kind of firepower that you get out of out of one of these heavy guns. Um, just the sheer, the sheer force of impact alone is enough to smash things, even if it ever explodes. You, you, bring up uh, a, you bring up a really good point that I also want to talk to you about, which is um, while aboard, of, uh, like the command, like the captain is going to be, is, are, is the captain on the bridge? I mean, because I would think you're really vulnerable up there. I've, yeah. In my mind's eye, I can see these, uh, you know, you're up there with the windows, nice view, but... Uh, in, if, if you're taking incoming fire, it seems like these shells would just punch straight through the, uh, you know, th mm. that the say the bridge, the bridge. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so th this is actually a, a quandary that is a matter of huge debate amongst navies at the time, because Navy, all, well, all battleships in World War One are built with what's called a conning tower. Um, and this is basically an armoured cylinder with an armoured roof that sits just forward of the bridge and much lower down. And it will have armour that is as thick, or in some cases thicker, than the main belt armour of the battleship. And the purpose of it is as a small armoured room, and the idea is precisely for the reasons you mentioned, that in a battle, the captain and the admiral and their crew, their staff are supposed to go into the conning tower, command the ship from there with the idea that the armor will protect them from being hit. And the downside to that is that obviously if you're wanting to keep shells out, you can't have massive windows. You have tiny viewing slits. And between that and the much lower height, um, the conning tower it does have disadvantages because you can't see as much of the battlefield as you'd like. And obviously in world war one, there's no radar. 
um there's no sonar there's there's nothing like that you are relying on what you can see in order to direct your ship or indeed to follow orders which may be being sent by searchlight or or signal flag so everyone every ship has a conning tower whether or not the captains use them is another matter entirely um a lot of them do prefer to stay on the bridge on the basis that they can see a lot better and therefore they can command better and so they hope that with that sort of benefit to their ability mm. to command the vessel they might be able to hit the enemy hard first before they right. the enemy hits them anyway and it's a um, little bit uh, there's there's also taking a, shelter a not a not a not a great you know when you're a captain of a ship the idea of taking shelter in the conning tower may be yeah. you know not something you want to do as a leader you want to be you know leading the troops yeah. and on the battle and and the, and the other the other two factors are one bridges aren't armored because they're too high up in the ship so if you're shooting at, if you're being shot at with an armor piercing shell if unless the armor piercing shell actually literally comes through the bridge at which point it's going to take everybody apart by sheer physical impact but it like if it hits in the room behind that high up in the ship the shell's probably just going to go straight through the superstructure and out right. the other side um, so you'd have to be fairly unlucky to take a direct hit, although shrapnel from nearby hits exploding on armor is a problem. Um, but the other thing is that, especially around about this point, there's a little bit of pushback amongst command staff against conning towers because at the Battle of Tsushima, which was about eight, ten years before the outbreak of World War One, depending on uh, which country you are, um, the conning towers had been used but it turns out that actually these small armored cylinders, when they get hit by properly heavy battleship caliber shells, they don't actually afford that much protection because they might stop the shell, but you're effectively inside a gigantic armored bell at that right. point. Shock and if wave. you imagine, like, imagine the bad health effects of being inside a clock tower's bell when it's rung. Now imagine it's being rung, as I said, by basically a, a very compacted supersonic sedan that's right. just smashed into the side. Um, not a fun place to be. Let me. So no. I want to talk about a little bit now that we've got now the armament is advanced. These mm. things are massive. They can shoot for miles. Yeah. Um, come a long way. They come a long come way. a long way in terms of being able to shoot an object that weighs a thousand pounds that can explode. Uh, what I'm interested in is the the technology necessary uh, to be accurate. The fire control system. Mm -hmm. And the variables involved here, both the ship you're shooting from and the ship that is in transit, you know, miles away, uh, just, boy, with the rolling surfaces and thing. I mean, mm -hmm. how did they solve this problem of fire control accuracy and how good mm -hmm. were they at this period? So this is basically the first compute, the first form of battlefield computer. Um, it's a mechanical, as in literally hand-cranked, and then later electromechanical, which is still um, sort of gears and cogs and wheels and stuff and belts, but driven by electric motors, um, computer. And you plug in various factors, and the, the, the things evolve in complexity as time goes on. Um, but you, you would tell it things like um, your speed and bearing, um, the enemy's course and speed and bearing, what you think the range is based on your range finders which are part of the whole system as i say there's a video that explains this in 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 much more extensive detail great video um, gotta check it out it's very good yeah but the 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 basic fundamental of it is that 
any one of these calculations is solvable by a human because it's like if, if the enemy's moving at uh 20 knots and we know that the shell at this range of say fifteen thousand yards the shell will take 18 seconds to get there so it's very easy to go okay well right. 20 knots that's a, obviously speed in uh, nautical miles per hour you can divide that down pretty quickly work out that the ship is going to advance so many hundred yards in that time in the time that it takes the shell to get there so you just shift your aim of the guns that far forward Right, that's you can, easy to do. That sounds like the easy part, but the position yeah. of the ship itself, and it's, as you said, during this era of sail, are you firing yeah. on the down roll or the up roll? Is that still a factor? It is still a factor, although now you're trying to aim, you're trying to aim dead center. So there, there is a, obviously, as the ship rolls, that's imparting a certain amount of vertical motion to the gun. So now you're kind of trying to shoot, ideally, at a point when the ship is uh, where there's minimal vertical motion. So you're now shooting either right at the top of the roll or right at the bottom of the roll. Um, or in some navies, you shoot dead center in the middle of the roll because that's when the speed is the most constant. It's You're not accelerating right. or decelerating. Right. Me... And it's a known fact you can correct for. And the thing about fire control, as I say, is that any one of these factors, whether it's leading your shot, estimating the range, estimating the rate of roll, the timing of the firing, any one of these you can work out relatively quickly and easily as as, a, as a, the average human. But there's about 20 or 30 different factors that go into it. And by the time you've worked out all of them, bearing in mind that some of them depend on the results of the others, well, A, it'll be like a minute or two later and be all of the factors you started out with will have changed so you'd have to start over again you'll never get an accurate shot so this is where these mechanical calculating devices come in handy because they can solve all of these much faster and then that gives you a good idea of where to shoot but obviously there's going to be various environmental factors and other things you can't control for plus obviously it's still humans putting the data in so your observations might be slightly in error so your first shot is almost never going to hit but you can then look and say okay well we thought we should aim here the shell's gone say 200 yards short and is 100 yards further back so we can adjust recalculate fire again okay we're a bit closer and so on and so forth which is why that visual uh, capacity to visually understand the battle as it's occurring is so critical because you're adjusting mm -hmm. based on on a visual is um, you mentioned that during the Spanish-American sea battle, the hit rate yeah. was something like a one percent, which is unbelievably, yeah. uh, you know, you think, boy, that's that's pretty terrible. Where yeah. are we now in terms of accuracy in the armament at this stage? Of, mm -hmm. We're around, I guess, we're in the the nineteen teens. Maybe we're in the neighborhood of World War One. Yeah. How much better are we? So, the the main thing is because range has increased so dramatically that has its own effects on accuracy because obviously hitting something further away is a lot harder um if the if the ships were gonna still be fighting at the ranges of the spanish-american war i.e 500 to 1500 yards you would expect basically if you didn't get better than 50 percent accuracy someone was going to get fired or possibly executed um but the ships are now fighting at ranges of 10 15 up to twenty thousand yards so they're firing a lot further and that obviously that decreases accuracy back down again but um to give you some idea of overall averages 
Admiral Beatty's battle cruisers at Jutland, which are constantly derided afterwards for absolutely abysmal gunnery, are scoring about one and a half ish percent hits at this kind of roughly 15,000 yard average range. So they're shooting 15 times further and probably getting about 50% more hits um, compared to the Spanish American war. The, the best shooting ships on average to the fifth battle squadron are scoring around about four to 5% hits. So that's a sort of a four to 500% increase in accuracy again, over about 15 times the range. And if you, if, and when you look at very special ships with really, really good gunners like HMS Iron Duke, she's getting sort of 17, 18% accuracy at those kind of ranges. But Iron Duke is its own little special case, which, um, yeah, it, it seems to, it seems to have been crewed by a, by a gunnery, uh, a gunnery officer who, quite clearly was a superlative uh, example of his class <laughs> yeah well that would make up for it you know just excellence mm. in uh you know on board at, at these various mm -hmm. command positions i i i've got to ask something else you know this is a we've been talking a lot about technology mm -hmm. kind of driving things but the yeah. other obvious technology here is air power and i know peter has mm -hmm. a, a question cooking that we're going to save yeah. for save for the world war ii period but um Talk about how, you know, by the by World War One, my mm -hmm. understanding is that we do have aircraft carriers in the world. They exist. Uh, there are aircraft. Uh, uh, I don't know. If there's, a, there, there's aircraft on board a battleship, a, you know, that mm -hmm. catapult launched that would re be retrieved uh, that were spotters. But we, the carrier doesn't. When does the carrier? Well, I don't want to jump so, too far ahead. But. In theory, you've kind of got carriers in World you War One, but they are seaplane carriers. Um, so they're not the aircraft carrier that you might think of. A so few of like them have lower it down with a crane. Forward, uh. But the aircraft all have floats and have to be recovered back. They basically, they land on the sea, they taxi up to the ship, and then the ship cranes them back on uh. board. And they're very light, um, basically scouts. A few of them are used for light bombing attacks on um land targets and such but in terms of taking on shipping although you do see the first aerial torpedo attack take place during world war one that kind of technology is only really just about getting worked up to operational capability generally speaking by the end of world war one um so you have seaplane carriers you have some early attempts at aircraft carriers so the rather questionable HMS Furious is redesigned as a hybrid battle carrier, which turns out to be possibly even worse. Um, but it's new. It's a new technology. It's got a big flying off deck, but um, the, fir the first idea of having a traditional capital ship superstructure and expecting aircraft to fly around it and then land on the forward deck doesn't really work out. Um, it then ends up they end up taking off both the remaining main gun. Um, they stick a landing deck aft. Um, so it's now looking kind of like a, what we would think of as a carrier. And, but that doesn't, again, doesn't quite work out because the massive superstructure causes all sorts of turbulence. And it's just after the First World War that we start to see the first carriers that we would actually think of as proper carriers. So you've got Furious eventually gets turned into just complete flat deck carrier with no island um you've got obviously uss langley converted from a collier uh hms hermes hms eagle the japanese hosho 
they all come about in the at the end of the 1910s and the beginning of the 1920s. So I, I mean, I'm just curious to know. Obviously, mm-hmm. totally talk about you. We spent 60 years from the Civil War period, 1860s mm-hmm. through the 1920s. The, we, there's been a lot of focus on gunnery, a lot of focus on armor, a lot of focus on propulsion, and all of a sudden, there's this new thing that flies, and like nothing about what you've been focused on in the Navy is. is yeah. So I'm curious to know how a how the um, schools, the uh, the people both in in the U.S. Navy and in the the Royal Navy and navies around the world, how they are mm-hmm. uh, embracing air power. If there is a resistance to it or if they're like, oh, man, this is great. We can. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm also interested, like once the these like proto carriers that you're talking about, once they start to enter the battlefield picture, like, you know, once mm-hmm. we get to World War Two, are the American entrance into World War Two was an attack on uh, Pearl Harbor with aircraft. I mean, they did not yeah. attempt to sail into Pearl Harbor and and shoot <laughs> shoot their Everything, big guns yeah. at us. They they used the aircraft. So I'm just curious to know. Obviously, between uh, this period of time, for, between 1920 and 19 the 1940s or the 1930s, uh, mm-hmm. aircraft are just exp- you know this technology is changing everything. Yeah. So car- carriers are an interesting thing. The U.S. Navy actually dodges a massive bullet when it comes to carrier development because America only enters the World War I in 1917, although they send a squadron of battleships to join the British Grand Fleet and they become the 6th Battle Squadron. The Germans, annoyingly, don't come out for a, a second Jutland. So unfortunately, the US Navy doesn't have any capital ship combat experience directly coming out of World War I. This means that when it comes to designing their first, well, not their first, design but actually building their first battle cruisers the lexington class um yeah that they make something of a mistake in that they they build this gigantic incredibly fast incredibly heavily armed um battle cruiser that effectively has paper for armor um and that would have ended very badly if if it had ever gone to war but because of the Washington Naval Treaty, the Lexington class, which is originally going to be six strong, uh, four of them are scrapped. The, and the first two, Lexington and Saratoga, are converted into aircraft carriers. This turns the fortunes of the Lexington class around massively because as battle cruisers, they were designed to be massive high-speed units. And it turns out having massive high-speed hulls is perfect for aircraft carriers. Um, they just don't put on virtually any of the armor, which is fine because there wasn't all that much to begin with. Um, and instead of putting in sort of twin 16-inch gun turrets, they put in uh, a big flight deck. And all of a sudden, um, the U.S. Navy has arguably the most powerful aircraft carriers on the planet in the 1920s. Um, the only ones that really come close at that point are the Japanese. Is the Japanese Akagi, uh, which is converted from and again a battle cruiser, um, but there's only one of it, and there's two Lexingtons because the the other the Japanese were planning to do two of them, but the one of the hulls got destroyed by the Great Kanto earthquake, and they had to substitute the less satisfactory Karga battleship hull, which was slower and shorter. Wow! Can I just? pause for a second and say that your off-the-cuff understanding of this stuff is blowing my mind. I, the, 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 I mean, 
God, thank you so much for for top walking us through it. Um, I think this might be the definitive God. naval history podcast <laughs> in in that I'm we're doing here ashamed. for the United States. And you, the mm. fact that you do this uh, on your channel is such a service. It and is really everybody go check it out. It's uh, Drock, Pronounce pronounce it for me. I'm not going to try to do it right now. It's Dr- Drick NFL. Drick NFL. Go to this yep. YouTube thing. Uh, I'll tell you, just as an as an aside to uh, mm-hmm. extol your uh, work, your th- your piece on uh, propulsion on triple expansion, mm-hmm. which we breezed over, is really good. Your piece on boilers and the evolution of boiler technology is really good. And he's got pictures. I mean, these are like full presentations, ladies and gentlemen, with historical. Pa- and you can really see. I mean, and it it makes sense. You can track this stuff. Yeah. Well, I want to keep. I want to keep. <laughs> yes, uh, I want to. And and the USS Lexington uh, uh, becomes a, a, a very famous aircraft carrier in uh, yeah. World War II. Infamous, I guess. It didn't turn out so well uh, <laughs> at the end of the, when it was uh, basically destroyed, but survived. Uh, can we talk about um, about air power and the Navy? And the question I wrote down when I was thinking mm. about this show was whether you were bummed out by the emergence of naval air power. Um, not really. I mean, the thing is, naval air power developing through the 20s and 30s is a very interesting thing. And it it shows how, again, how quickly things can change. Because for the majority, it's like there's a, this two-decade interwar period. And for most of it, the big navies are embracing air power, but it's very definitely in its place. There's this very famous test by Billy Mitchell where he claims that in the early 1920s bombers are the end of uh, the battleship. And anyone who actually matters basically ignores him because that test is so heavily rigged and even then barely even works. Um, it is It is just it, it's an absurd piece of propaganda that he organizes. The US Navy just kind of throws their hands up in despair and just goes yeah whatever and marches off to do its own thing most of that period there's the carriers are seen as an ancillary part of but important part of the fleet they're good for scouting they're good for countering enemy scouting because obviously aircraft can go further and faster um from the fleet than cruisers and destroyers can and they're also seen as a good way of reducing the enemy's strength. So dive, uh, torpedo bombers and later dive bombers, the idea is generally that they might pick off the odd small ship, but mostly they're th- thinking in terms of either taking out the enemy's carrier or damaging portions of the enemy's capital ship fleet. Because if you can mm. damage them, they have to slow down. And then the enemy fleet has a choice of either we go at the speed of this damaged ship, at which point your fleet has tactical superiority and can choose when to come in and shoot them, or they abandon that ship. If they abandon that ship, they free kill. And when you meet up with the enemy fleet, eventually they're now down a ship or two or however many. Um, The idea of the carrier as the decisive element isn't there by the start of World War II. And that's actually for very good reason the aircraft of the late 1930s aren't capable of it right they're still mostly biplanes they're still relatively slow um a kind of a 1938-1939 full carrier strike on a fleet if as long as that fleet has its own carriers and can put up defensive fighters 
it will damage ships, but it's very unlikely to kill anything of any significant input. Like the swordfish uh, in the British Navy. I think there was a plane called the swordfish, one of the early carrier-based. Pretty weak, couldn't carry a lot of of bombs. It really didn't have a lot of... uh, Torpedoes, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, swordfish could carry a single torpedo. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the swordfish is kind of the epitome of the biplane torpedo bomber. But still, it's a biplane torpedo bomber in a world of monoplane fighters and such. Like um, the the big thing that happens when it comes to carriers is that whilst World War Two breaks out, I say in nineteen thirty nine for Japan and the US, it obviously doesn't break out to the end of nineteen forty one and this is what I mean by technology advancing massively. Um, if you look at the flight decks of USS Enterprise or USS Yorktown or USS Saratoga in 1938, you'll see biplanes everywhere. Yeah. Um, if you look at their flight decks a few days after Pearl Harbor, not a biplane to be seen. In those two years, that's where you see the Wildcat, yeah. you see the Dauntless, and to a certain degree of questionable success, you see the Devastator. Um, the Avenger doesn't come around until sort of six, eight months further down the line. Yeah, the but Hellcat still, is later you, too. You've still at least got the Wildcat and the Dauntless. Um, and on the same on the Japanese side, they go from the A5N, uh, which is a fair enough, it's a monoplane fighter, but with a fixed undercarriage with the wheels down, permanently down, to the famous A6M0. Um, they obviously and they bring in the Val and the Kate, the right. the dive and torpedo bombers. So um, the aircraft carrier wings of the late nineteen of late nineteen forty one, for the navies that so have not had to deal with wartime operations and have therefore been able to innovate, are suddenly massively stronger, wow. and the world gets woken up to this in a big way by Pearl Harbor. Okay, I want to ask you about. One of the famous battles, naval battles of World War II in my, I mean, uh, mm-hmm. one of the books I read when I was younger, which was one of the favorite books, I, probably the first book I read that I absolutely loved was The Sinking of the Bismarck. Mm-hmm. The not American, but we're we're gonna yeah, we're gonna is, allow it because in the end of the day, no, well, it's a it's a it's it's I think it's transitional at this point, and it yeah. speaks to we were naval Alpa, uh, the Bismarck with German battleship, of course, sunk by the mm-hmm. by the British Navy, an amazing battle. But can you talk about that as a representative battle, or is it representative of this transition to air power? In a lot of ways, it is. In in a lot of ways, actually, the. The voyage and sinking of the Bismarck represents a lot of different naval technologies coming to the fore. Um, I mean, Bismarck is tracked by radar-equipped cruisers, which is a brand new technology. Um, It's then the first time it's attacked by swordfish from HMS Victorious. They actually come in at night, again now with airborne radar which is actually this, this night attack capability with airborne radar is something that the British basically have as a unique feature for most of the second world war um the first non-british ship to be able to conduct full night operations as a carrier is actually uss enterprise in 1944 but that's a few years down the line from this this point um you then continue to have radar and radio communications playing a key part in keeping track of the bismarck um you have it being re-spotted by aerial reconnaissance um, albeit not carrier based uh, the the uh, PBY two Catalina taking taking part there. One of my favorite planes and, of all time. 
Yeah, they they are wonderful planes, and as, as somebody once said, it's like if if there's dew on a field, you can land a Catalina on it. <laughs> That's um, great. But the uh, yeah, so you've got the that, and then the second set of airstrikes that go in um, from Arc Royal. The first wave doesn't do quite so well, accidentally attacking HMS Sheffield, but fortunately they have faulty. Uh, torpedo detonators so it kind of works out the second wave uh, of aircraft goes out and yeah it hits bismarck um, most of the hits to the torpedo defense system don't do too much but you do get this critical hit which jams the rudder right. um, bismarck is then slowed and turning in circles it's just out of range of uh, the assistance of the luftwaffe it's not quite able the, the u-boats aren't quite able to get there fast enough to <clears throat> to sort of help guard it and then it gets pinned in place by king george v and rodney and shelled pieces um, over the course of a morning now if i understand this right and i'm not sure i'm remembering this correctly mm -hmm. but uh the bismarck was the uh was the preeminent battleship of, of, of the uh german navy uh yeah. and this was its maiden voyage i mean the british had been yeah watching the construction and when it was going to go to the sea. And I think Churchill made it a point, like when that thing comes out of the Baltic, we're going to go after it. And there's some amazing stories of the accuracy of the German gunners. I believe they sink uh, one of the British attack ships in a single shot or yeah. two. I mean, can you talk about the gunnery capability of that battleship versus the the air power of the Ark Royal. It was kind of just such an amazing story. Yeah. So Bismarck has very hard hitting guns. Um, it, in fact, the guns are hard, are hard enough hitting. They actually have a slightly um, negative tendency of knocking out the ship's own forward radar with their back blast, which is something, <laughs> something of a problem. Um, but yeah, Bismarck is a big, big ship. And yeah, it, it sinks HMS Hood. Uh, I think it's about five or six salvos in. They manage to land a hit, and uh, Hood's magazine's rear magazine goes up, and that's all she wrote for the battle cruiser Hood. Um, Bismarck sometimes does get a bit over overdone. Um, I've mentioned on my channel uh, several times before, and I am actually going to do a specific video all about the strengths and weaknesses of Bismarck. Um, Bismarck is is definitely powerful and definitely a, a ship to be feared however it is also inefficient the the ships that it's mostly fighting are or the ships that, that mostly go after it with the exception of hood are treaty era warships uh washington treaty era warships so they're theoretically thirty-five thousand ton displacement standard um so the, the sort of the contemporary would be something like uss north carolina um or uss south dakota actually is under construction at the time Bismarck is seven to eight thousand tons heavier than they are, so almost sort of twenty twenty five percent more displacement. It's not that much more powerful than they are. Um, like if you if you were to put Bismarck up against USS South Dakota, I'd put my money on South Dakota without even blinking. Um, Bismarck's slightly faster than it is, but that's pretty much the only advantage it has. Um, so yeah, B Bismarck is in and of itself is a bit of a transitional warship it represents both uh sort of late 1930s thinking in terms of where battleships are going in terms of size 
and with the fact it has radar and it has these long range high velocity guns and it has very accurate fire control systems all and good torpedo defense these are all pointing towards the future um, but then other aspects of, a, of it such as the mixed secondary battery and um, the distributed armor scheme these are sort of looking back to world war one and in uh, a large part what makes it a relatively inefficient vessel um and then compare that to arc royal arc royal is kind of a late nine uh sorry late 1920s early 1930s design carrier and it's it's relatively unique amongst british carriers in that it's mostly designed for pacific operations so it's slightly less well protected than the follow-on carriers um but it in exchange it carries a few more aircraft and it's a very useful very versatile ship and it obviously it manages to to take take out well not take out this mark, but cripple it so that every everything else can pile in on it um yeah with these little biplanes kind of the way you described i mean damaged it yeah made it so it couldn't have Maneuver. full maneuverability and then you pick it off yeah. um well look drug this has been mm. an amazing uh double session marathon session here on the american shoreline podcast network all about the u.s navy and naval technology in general but i and we've been going a long time clearly we're going to have to do more clearly there's another show on the horizon but i want you to take us home and i will say this i i give you the i give you the floor any uh we've worked our way to world war ii Mm-hmm. A lot of naval action for for the United States on both the Pacific and the Atlantic side. Is there a story, a battle story, uh, that comes to mind to to bring us home for Independence uh, Week here, our week long celebration mm-hmm. uh, that you would like to tell for our listeners? Yes, I can think of one. This is actually this is not just one of my favorite U.S. Navy stories. This is one of my favorite Navy stories. Period. Um, my, top, my top three regularly change depending on which aspects I'm looking at, but this is always up there. And that is the story of Commander Evans, who was the captain of the Fletcher class destroyer USS Johnston. And he was one of the few escorting ships for Taffy 3. And Taffy 3 was a small unit of escort carriers. They were there to support the landings. Um, at Leyte Gulf as part of the uh, sort of the later war period <clears throat> retaking of the Philippines. And they're not expecting any trouble. You, you don't leave a handful of destroyers and destroyer escorts with some escort carriers when you're expecting trouble. They think they've got a nice day. They think they're going to be, maybe the destroyers will be doing a bit of shore bombardment. The, the carriers will be doing a little bit of, of air support for the Marines and the army going in. It's all much of a muchness. Off to the north, you've got Admiral Halsey with a huge task force of carriers and and modern battleships. He has unfortunately gone charging off north after a Japanese decoy force and has left the San... uh, I think it's the San... No, not the San Bernardino Straits. It might be a strait. But anyway, there's a set of straits. He was supposed to be covering. He's left that unguarded. And through that gap in the defences comes the biggest battleship the world has ever and probably will ever see, the Japanese battleship Yamato, being followed by three other 
capital ships, the Nagato, the Congo, and the Haruna, multiple heavy cruisers, several squadrons of destroyers, and they're coming there with one mission and one mission only, which is to break through any American defenses that are present and to get to the landing areas um, at Leyte and then unleash absolute hell on the landing ships because obviously landing ships can't defend themselves. Um, troops on shore, it's like, yeah, uh, an M1 Garand is a fine rifle. You're not taking on a 70,000 ton battleship with it. Um, the idea is to stop the American invasion of the Philippines cold, basically by slaughtering several tens of thousands of US uh, Marine and Army personnel in their ships. Because Admiral Halsey's gone charging off north, the only thing that stands in their way is Ace, uh, is Taffy 3. So a handful of tiny escort carriers and, as I say, a few, a few destroyers, destroyer escorts, amongst which is USS Johnston. And to give you some idea of just how unequal a fight this is, if you add the combined tonnage of every ship in Taffy 3, destroyer, destroyer escort, and escort carrier together, that doesn't even approach the displacement of Yamato alone. You might then think... Not that... looking good for the Yanks. <laughs> yeah, the the solution at this... The, you might think the solution at this point is run away as fast as you possibly can because you're just going to get shot to pieces. Uh, every metric says you will lose this fight and you will lose it hard. And initially, because the carriers are quite vulnerable, the ca the escort carriers do need to run because if they can... They will be overhauled, but if they run they can slow the rate of closure enough that they can maybe launch some aircraft and hope to distract and damage the Japanese ships. But in the middle of all this, um, Cap Captain Evans on the Johnston realizes that it's not going to work. The, the Japanese are too quick. They're going to overhaul. Already shell splashes are raining down around the escort carriers, and it's probably a matter of minutes before... Several thousand U.S. Navy personnel go to the bottom in their carriers, shortly followed, as I said, by several tens of thousands of U.S. Army and Marine personnel on the landing beaches. And so what he does in his one destroyer is he turns around and he charges basically the majority of the remaining Japanese surface fleet single-handed, um, shortly to be followed by uh, the, the three or four other escort ships that were with Taffy 3, but he's the, he's the one who leads out on this. And he goes straight down the Japanese throats. He ends up fighting several Japanese cruisers. He ends up fighting several Japanese battleships, including the Yamato. Um, he blazes away with his little five-inch guns and launches his torpedoes. And beyond all hope, not only does he manage to blow the bow off a Japanese cruiser, he also manages to scare the majority of the Japanese fleet into turning away from the carriers he's trying to protect, but with his torpedoes, because they've just seen what happened to the Kumano, the cruiser he's just blown the, the front off of. They don't want any part of that, so when they see the torpedoes incoming, they have to turn and run north. His ship then starts taking a lot of fire, and I do mean a lot. Um... As you might imagine, the Japanese are a little bit annoyed by this one this one tiny destroyer that's holding up their advance. So they are they're unloading everything they've got at him and the other escorting ships, but they're putting up such a vicious fight that the Japanese think that they're fighting U.S. cruisers. They think they're they think each of these ships is a is actually a vessel that's probably ten times the displacement. 
and the fight goes on far longer than it has any right to um the the johnston gets smashed repeatedly by heavy caliber shells um the shells in fact in some cases are so big that they're actually punching straight through the ship and out the other side because the ship isn't providing enough resistance for the fuses to initiate so it's a cartoon style hole going straight through the ship Um, an entire japanese torpedo uh, squadron of destroyers shows up to try and attack uh, the US carriers and Johnston single-handedly fights them off. Um, they t- basically take one look at this burning, smoking, half-wreck that's spitting five-inch gunfire from every surviving mount and they just decide, you know what, we don't want any part of this. We're going somewhere else where the Johnston isn't. Wow. Um, despite the fact, again, on paper, this one's destroyer squadron alone should have been able to carve the ship to, into a million pieces. Um, but they, they'd rather they'd rather go elsewhere than face the wrath of this very, very angry destroyer. Wow. In the end, unfortunately, um, there is only so much that a destroyer can take, and Johnston does go down. Um, with a a number of casualties, but there are still survivors that are recovered after the battle. And as a result of that, not only does Tappy 3's escort carriers get airstrikes off, um, Tappy 1 and Tappy 2 further south, um, which are similar groups of escort carriers, get their own airstrikes off. More reinforcements are called in, um, and the Japanese ships find themselves in a bad way because in part inspired by Johnston's stand, the other destroyers and destroyer escorts are fighting just as hard uh, the carriers with their lone five inch gun mounts are taking pot shots at the japanese cruisers that are coming after them and the japanese admiral in the face of all this resistance uh, decides that he's had enough and at the moment when in theory he could have actually pushed through what was left of the american defenses and gone for the landing landing beaches he decides it's it's not worth it this is far too much resistance i don't know what's going to come after me next but if this is how this this first wave is fighting um i don't think i can beat the rest and the japanese battle force turns away and retreats um to lose a bunch of extra ships later on to airstrikes but yeah it's a absolutely remarkable story of courage sheer courage and determination by captain evans and the uss johnston um almost single-handedly turning back an entire enemy battle fleet wow and even in death johnston proves to be a remarkably unique vessel because uh, last year it appears that the rv petrol has managed to discover the wreck and it's currently, well, at least part of the wreck, it's currently taking the biscuit as the deepest warship wreck on record since it happened to go down over the area near the Marianas Trench. So right. it is properly deep. Um, so, yeah, even in, je- even in death, Johnston continues to uh, excel on the league tables of warships. An unbelievable and inspiring story of American naval heroism. What a perfect fitting end to the special Fourth of July show. Ladies and gentlemen, it's Drock. You can find his YouTube channel at Drock NFL, D-R-A-C-H-I-N-I-F-E-L. Check it out, and we hope everyone has a safe and fun 4th of July.
Singing while I'm not 